is going on, everybody? Pete Forsey, the podcast. We are back. I am back. Football is back. NFL training camp in full swing. Major League Baseball rounding the corner. Cannot wait to talk ball. San Francisco 49ers earlier today named Sam Darnold quarterback two. Can't believe I'm leading off with the backup quarterback discussion in San Francisco, but it is a lot there. There's a lot there that I want to unpack. The Jets, we got to talk about their offensive line woes, what's going on there. Also, the Yankees, other team in New York, not doing too well. Tua Tagovailoa, heard some things today I really don't like. I don't like that for him. I don't like that for the Dolphins. Definitely got to talk about that. The Chai Sox, Chicago, spent some time there on the south side. Are they leaving? We, we That would not be good, and I, it would not be good for Jerry Reinsdorf. Their owner, I'm going to talk about that, Jonathan Taylor, Jim Irsay. It is episode 118 of the podcast. Thanks so much for choosing the show. Kyle Shanahan has always kept it real, to use his words, from when he was speaking to the Bay Area, the San Francisco radio, in regards to his quarterback room. He announced that Sam Darnold will be his backup quarterback to Brock Purdy, leaving Trey Lance as the potential third QB or off the roster. And he he has always been very straightforward with his players and, frankly, the public, the, the, the general press. He's never really skirted around many questions, maybe the one exception being when they were drafting Trey Lance in 2021. And today is really not about Trey Lance, in my opinion, because – I think Trey Lance has always gotten a raw deal. He played one game in 2020. He came from North Dakota State, an FCS program. And at the time, due to Josh Allen, due to Carson Wentz, who was still humming at at that point, there was a lot of belief that you come from a small FCS school and have success in the NFL, when really, historically speaking, that is an outlier. The best quarterbacks have come from the Power Five conferences, doesn't necessarily mean you have to be an Alabama quarterback or Ohio State or Clemson or wherever, but Power 5 is where NFL players come from. So with Trey Lance, it was always an oddity to me that he was being touted as a great NFL prospect when really he didn't even play well in college. He didn't even play against the best competition in college. And then he plays one game and he's drafted third overall. It never added up to me. And there are a couple of reports out there at the time, and it's probably ringing true even more today that Shanahan never really wanted Trey Lance. He was talked into him by John Lynch. Lynch was really in his ear saying the third overall pick is more for a guy like Lance than the high floor or safe pick in, in Mac Jones. But if they had to do over, I think they would take Mac Jones over Trey. So Where his career goes, I don't know. It's going to be alarming if a team like the Titans, where Ran Ran Catherine, I believe this is the general manager's name. I always want to say Ron. He's now the Titans GM, but he came from San Francisco. Uh, The Lions, who have Jared Goff, who's playing well, but are in the developmental business. They they should definitely be looking at a second quarterback there. They're one that that pops off the page, along with the Vikings and, and a few others. I really feel he needs to play football if he's going to resurrect his career. But when it's all said and done, he might just not be an NFL player. The larger and bigger potential story here is Sam Darnold. 
I don't know if there's a guy that really epitomizes what Kyle wants in a quarterback all that much better than Darnold. Purdy is up there, as is Jimmy Garoppolo, a guy that gets the ball out on time, sees the play develop, and is not going to do anything ad lib. He's not going to do anything much off script. This is Darnold. He has been dying for structure his entire career. He had a little bit with Matt Rule, but they were still collecting enough talent at that point. I think this could turn into a situation very quickly where Sam Darnold is quarterback in the Niners, and they're vying for a playoff berth. I still believe in the talent, not as much as when he was drafted in 2018. I thought he was the best quarterback prospect in that draft. Obviously, today that doesn't turn out to be the case. But I think he could really take leaps and bounds improvement here with Shanahan as the play caller. Mind you, Brock Purdy started 5-0, and very impressive. But that is a far cry from an entire NFL season. That's 17 games. That is over triple what he played last year. And this isn't baseball. He's not a right-handed pitcher playing for the Yankees or the Giants. However, he tore his UCL. And he's going to be taking a lot of snaps throughout the course of the year. And I think we could look back at this come November and not realize or, or feel foolish for not thinking more about how he has recovered from this surgery at a rapid pace, much further along than baseball pitchers do in the big leagues. I'm a little concerned for Brock Purdy in that regard. I'm really concerned about that elbow holding up. And if there's any sort of resurfacing of that injury or any dip in his performance, Shanahan will turn to Darnold in a minute. So while a lot of the attention has been on Trey Lance, the bigger story tonight I think is the actual quarterback ahead of him, and that's Sam Darnold. He could be playing for the Niners very early in 2023. You know, I will admit when it comes to all the NFL football and Major League Baseball that I put on the television, a lot of compromise happens between me and Miss Taylor uh, on the on the off nights. There's not many with baseball, obviously, but on the off nights with the NFL and several nights during the course of a, a six month baseball season, she has say over what we watch on the television. I don't get to choose many of the TV shows or any other. Uh, networks or, or any other uh, content that we want to put on the TV. That's kind of her lane. That's the sacrifice that I make. So having said that, the HBO Hard Knocks that I was hoping would be resurrected this year with the Jets, I, I haven't watched it, but I feel as if I'm not ver missing very much because as they are right on cue, they're editing out all the good stuff. They're not showing players get cut. It's the Aaron Rodgers show, but they're also make it all – hunky-dory, none of the, the hard conversations, the lone exception maybe being when Robert Sala laid into his offensive line. And I think that really woke up the public because I was privately looking at those offensive tackles and the age and the decline and very worried for their offensive potential. I like their playmakers. I like their quarterback. I think with a good offensive line, it'll take time for them to gel overall. But with this bad bookend tackle situation, 
it could be an outright disaster when you look at the gauntlet of the schedule. I was with a buddy, a loyal listener, Negus Webster Chan. We were looking at the schedule. Their first five games, they would be lucky to get one win into October, in the first weekend of October. And while I think that they're not going to be an outright disaster, it has the potential to be that if they don't right the ship from there. It would be understandable if they're winless in five games or if they only come out with one win. But it's going to be too little too late. Aaron Rodgers, the Jets, the the bright lights, his openness and, and, and transparency at the microphone, that's all good for the offseason. That's all good for training camp. Then the games start. And then the Wednesday press conferences come. And that's when things get real, and that's where we'll see if the New York Jets are for real. And right now, from what I'm seeing, the arrow is pointed down. So I've been tuned out with the worldwide leader ESPN for, for several years now. I was actually chatting with a guy, I think it was 4th of July weekend, and he had asked if I saw something and a little segment or, or snippet. Might have been NFL, might have been baseball. I couldn't even tell you. But they asked me my thoughts just about ESPN in general, and I, I began to speak, and then I paused and I realized I don't even feel comfortable offering my thoughts on them anymore because I haven't really tuned in consistently to their morning, afternoon, evening content for five to six years. I've been queued out that long that for me to even say anything negatively wouldn't be unfair because for all I know, they might have changed. But it's unlikely given the fact that this afternoon, Tua Tagovailoa is asked about Ryan Clark and Ryan Clark, of course, is, is I guess, throwing jabs about how he looks physically. He didn't work out. I, maybe he said he looked chubby. But the main takeaway from me here was the Miami Dolphins and Tua Tagovailoa, they are officially, without a doubt, seeking validation. Tua is wanting to be validated amongst his peers, the public, and even just his organization overall. I saw it last year against the Chargers. Justin Herbert and him, obviously, forever linked. They were picked in succession. And that entire game, I think there were 60 pass attempts. Might be wrong on that, but it, it was a drop-back game unnecessarily against a Los Angeles Chargers team that was horrific against the run. And yet Mike McDaniel continued to call play after play after play with Tua Tagovailoa having the ball in his hands. That was a sign to me, Miami wanting to prove to the rest of the NFL that they got their guy, that they do not care that Justin Herbert is on the other sideline. And then Tua this offseason, of course, he goes and he does the – MMA or the wrestling hand technique, which is, is all fine and well. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And then he shows up in, in training camp, and he's asking the media to to spit back the play to him that he receives from Mike McDaniel in the huddle, trying to show everybody how hard it is. And now this. He, he takes the bait from Ryan Clark. Tua is officially under this Miami Dolphins spell. 
he is now not the insular and confident player that I thought he once was. I, I really hate to see this for a guy that's really fighting for his career in Miami, that the concussions were, were not his fault. He's just a, a small, not that mobile player to where he's going to be susceptible to those. And and now this, he, he is announcing that he feels that pressure and he's out to prove everybody wrong. And the, the deck is stacked against him. I, I don't like it. I really wish he would have kept this um, inside him. I wish he would have rose above this, but this is another reason why I don't like Miami in addition to McDaniel and his play calling and another team that I don't think is destined to come out well in the AFC East. One very loud thing that popped out to me here earlier this week was the Chicago White Sox are rumored to be potentially leaving Chicago for the suburbs, new ballpark, maybe in the city of Bridgeport where they're located now, but also Nashville was floated around. I believe it came from the Chicago Business Journal, Chicago Business uh, uh, Bureau. I, I forget the source here, but a political writer wrote it and it was interesting to me because I, I had the opportunity while I lived in Chicago for two years to spend some time on the South Side, and a lot of it is known as a very crime-ridden, poor, gang-influenced territory, which th- there is plenty of that, but it's also very blue-collar. It is full of police workers, uh, nurses, school teachers, firefighters, all the people that want to work in the city and be under their pay structure and benefits, but they want to be on cheaper land. So they migrate towards the South as the city. And I tell you what, they're, they're very honest. They're very opinionated. They love their Chicago White Sox. So while of course there will certainly be some devastation, they, they will be crushed if this were to happen. It would also be potentially one of the nastier relocations that we could see I know Oakland is obviously doing their their boycott thing and they're coming out in droves and they've done it quite well um for you know if you you support that position the White Sox though if they were going to be moved out of Chicago by Jerry Reinsdorf I mean I, I would be not shocked at all if there was some very nasty protests some very nasty unionizations as far as trying to revolt against such a decision. They love their White Sox, and I think it really is lost on Major League Baseball fans and uh, and, and just overall at, at large, as far as sports fans, that the Chicago White Sox have been around since 1901. We're, we're talking about names like Frank Thomas, Shoeless Joe Jackson, Ozzie Guillen, Minnie Mimoso, Eddie Seacott, you walk around guaranteed rate field, you see a lot of Major League Baseball history. A lot of it resides with the Southsiders. Heck, they have some of the best uniforms in sports with their pinstripes, road grays, Chicago, probably the best out there in my opinion, and uh, the obviously old school Field of Dreams uniforms. The, the South Side of Chicago and their baseball team arguably – one of the richest in the history of all Major League Baseball. However, they're overshadowed in their own market. The Cubs and WGN 
and the reach that they had at a pivotal time with radio and then transitioning to television in the would have been the 70s and 80s, 90s, that's when the Cubs really took off and outpaced the White Sox. So I really think it would be a bummer if Major League Baseball were to approve this. Chicago deserves two teams. They have fully supported two teams and done it successfully. And I do not think you really want to let an original 1901 American League. That's when the American League was established and the Sox were one of the first team. You don't let those teams just relocate, especially when they haven't been an absolute face plant. You can let the Rays, you can let the Rockies, you can let the Rangers even, you can let those teams relocate. When you don't have rich history, when you don't win enough, those teams should be uh, on the market if you want to explore other opportunities in, in different cities. But the Chicago White Sox, original charter franchise of the American League since 1901, no, no, that cannot happen. Staying on the baseball side of things and in the two-team city, the other one, the New York Yankees. Brian Cashman spoke today and told it how it was, kept it real, as Shanahan says. It's been nothing short of a disaster. A nine-game skid, the worst since 1982. And I think this all but puts the kibosh and Cashman's plan and 100% investment in the long ball in wanting to outslug teams and hope that that can translate come the playoffs. The Yankees have had great, great amount of success in the last five years. But since 2018, when they got Giancarlo Stanton and the second year of the judge era, when he really took off, when he was really humming, they have gone all in on the long ball. They've gotten Joey Gallo. Uh, they have gotten uh, even uh, Gary Sanchez. They stuck with too long because they thought he was capable of being a real slugger. And they, they've continued to throw bats out there that, while maybe the numbers supported over a 100-game season, that if you really go all in on the long ball, strikeouts, be damned, you will have success. That is not playing out this year in 2023. It is clear. This is a very Aaron Judge-dependent offense. And Aaron Boone, I don't think he's the problem. Do I think he's a great manager? No, I think he holds back a lot of times. He doesn't let his relievers go. He's always worried about saving a guy for the potential next day. He doesn't like to use guys multiple innings. He is, he's way too cognizant of, uh, of pitch totals. He really needs to just go for the W when he sees the kill shot and he doesn't do it. So do I think Aaron Boone is great? No, but he is a, a far cry from the worst that's on the Yankees right now. So I think they really need to get more Jeter-like players, which I know that sounds dumb to say, a Hall of Famer, but they need to get more complete bats. And they missed out on them. They missed out on them with Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, two overall five-tool players when they decided to bow out in free agency. And at the time, did it look that bad? No. But it's looking bad pretty—it's it's looking bad right now. It really is. 
And I think they really need to round out this lineup with not right-handed sluggers, not necessarily balancing out left-handed, but balancing it out in doubles and less Ks and guys that are not 30 years old. The pitching is not good either. The Yankees are a mess, but it's got to start from up top with Brian Cashman. A philosophical shift has to be reverted back to their original 1990s days when they had a balanced lineup, guys that could spray the ball to all fields and go gap to gap. Right now, that's not happening for the Yankees, and that's why they're dead last in the American League East. You know, one thing that appears just to not be going away, and it's it's strange to be because he plays in Indianapolis. He was a second-round pick. He did lead, lead the league in rushing in 2021, but Jonathan Taylor is by no means a superstar. He doesn't talk a lot. He's not a brand guy. He's not a, a big Twitter guy from what I can see, or, or X rather. He's just not very much in the public like a Saquon Barkley. I understood when the saga was going on between the Giants and Barkley before he signed his contract. But it's really strange that Jonathan Taylor continues to be in the news when we're in training camp. He is all but dogmatic about wanting a contract extension right now. So a team would have to give up a draft pick for him and or a player and then sign him into an extension. I'm not sure what he's gaining out of demanding a trade. No team is going to give up that much capital for a player that wants that type of money, top of the market contract at the running back position, and they have to give up a a draft pick. I I don't think so. Not before the season are they willing to do that. Miami might do that, and they would be fools. So it's a very peculiar situation for Jonathan Taylor. His best bet is getting his ass in camp, getting healthy, kicking ass, and then the Colts would be forced to make a decision. Do we want to lose this player, or do we let him hit free agency? Either way, Jonathan Taylor is getting paid. And then if he doesn't play well, then he shouldn't have gotten paid in the first place and the other folks were proven right. I don't see his leverage in this situation at all. I keep seeing Stephen Holder of ESPN.com. I keep seeing NFL Network and Pelissero and the staff writers there talking about they understand Jonathan Taylor's position. I don't understand it at all. What leverage does he have? He has to play. Contractually, there's only one team he's going to be playing for until they say they don't want him. That's the Indianapolis Colts. Very weird situation that I don't think ends in any other way other than Jonathan Taylor buckling the chin strap with a horseshoe on his helmet, him prepared to kick ass, take names, and hopefully get paid, whether it's with Indianapolis or another NFL team next offseason. That will do it, everyone. Thanks so much for choosing the show. I need you to tell all your friends about the podcast. Follow, subscribe, review. We're on all the platforms. Tell them we're going to be giving all of our NFL content all season long. After every week, 18 weeks of the NFL season, we will be right here dropping in to your smartphone, into your earbuds, 
Thanks so much. We will see you guys next week.